the opportunity to be a refuge for them in a world that is just relentless. And, you know, you get family, we, we hosted 20, uh, 29 new Canadians who'd never been to the zoo before uh, last weekend and uh, gave them escape. Uh, they got to have some breakfast, they had VIP tours, and they got to be the center of a story that was nothing but good uh, for six hours. Uh, yeah, incredible moments like that uh, are the kind of thing that you wake up for. Welcome to the Attraction Pros Podcast, where we discuss the latest trends and challenges facing the attractions industry today. We chat with some of the top leaders in the field and provide resources that will help develop your career in this great industry. I am Josh Liebman. I am obsessed with the guest experience and helping attractions make that their top priority for success. And I'm Matt Heller. I am passionate about organizational effectiveness, leadership development, and employee engagement. Now sit upright, hold on tight, and get ready for the Attraction Pros Podcast. Hey, Josh, how are you? Hey, Matt, I'm doing great. How are you? I am fantastic. All right. Yes. And I have a question for you. Okay. What do you think of when you hear the word extinction? Extinction? Yeah. Well, I don't think many good things. I think about animals that could no longer survive on the planet any longer. Is it just animals, though? Could it also be plants or things yeah, that I, other other living things that can no longer survive? I would have to consult a scientist if we're going to go much deeper into this, but I, I believe so, yes. <laughs> I kind of wish I had thought of that question when we were talking to our guest, but... Um, I, I think of the same thing. I think of an irreversible process, right? That once mm. something is extinct, that it's gone forever. Um, but one thing that our guest Dolph uh, from the Toronto Zoo talks about today is the impact that we can have so that things don't go extinct. Yes. Yes. And he's extremely passionate about that and, and talks about uh, just everything from a conservation standpoint and the way uh, or I should say the ways in which we can all do tangible things in our lives, uh, like not eating meat once a week and the impact that that would have just on the overall planet. And then connecting that with what he does on a day-to-day -day basis, which is he's the CEO of the Toronto Zoo. So how can we connect the storytelling of conservation with the experience of having a fun day out and going to visit the zoo and interacting and learning about animals and blending all of that together towards going back to your original question about preventing extinction? Well, and I think one of the interesting things that Dolph really gets into is the messaging around that. And um, I think he said that, you know, not every message, um, uh, the, the way that you you present that message is going to be, you know, consumed by everybody. So you have to do it in multiple ways. Um, and that I think one in five people read signs. So what I think is really interesting about that is that it's such an important global message for all of us to kind of embrace and understand Um but it's not necessarily everybody that's saying the same thing about it. So it was really interesting to hear his take. Yeah, and his uh, his whole process of ruthless optimism. We get to learn all about 
what that means. And really, uh, just when the when the deck is stacked against you of being able to kind of persevere and and go through, and, and no one told you that it would be easy. He talks about that and, and just a, a, a great outlook and great mindset on leadership. Uh, so much great advice here on, on leadership and building a career in addition to everything on conservation of, of animals and preventing extinction. And one of the things that he talks about uh, in regards to it not being easy is separating the music from the noise. And I like how he kind of categorized those two things because it can be easy to um, get bogged down with things that it may seem like it matters, but it may not matter as, as much as something else, right? So there's things that we should absolutely be listening to, people, um, environments, communities, those type of things. But sometimes if we get mired in the things that um, are pulling us down rather than kind of lifting us up, it can be really, really tough. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he also talks about scarring people in positive ways. So listen to what he talks about in the ways that they've engaged with the community, with the initiatives that they have put forth uh, towards DEI and everything they are doing to better serve their staff, better serve their team and conversations that uh, just weren't being had five years ago, 10 years ago and in very recent past. Uh, as well as the response that uh, that that has been garnered from that and, and the overall impact that has been made from it. Well, with all that, should we go ahead and get to this interview with Dolph? Let's do it. Hey, Dolph, welcome to the Attraction Pros podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me, Matt. Awesome. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career? Well, you know what? Uh, I'm an incredibly lucky individual. I am uh, today uh, the CEO of your Toronto Zoo in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and it's this amazing place. It was my uh, my childhood zoo that I visited. Uh, I have fond memories of being here in grade three with my mom and my French immersion class and having a McDonald's ice cream cone, seeing my first Sumatran tiger, and now uh, I get paid to be here every day. So it's really, really a dream come true. Excellent. And then even leading up to your role now, can you tell us uh, a little bit kind of, of of how you got there and sort of the uh, quick uh, quick career path that you've taken to get to where you are today? Yeah, well, I often I often describe myself as an accidental CEO. I, uh, I was an educator by training. Uh, my formal education uh, was in that field as well. I thought for sure I would end up in the classroom, uh, but uh, we actually had a, a manager at a park I worked at, an assistant superintendent who uh, had an approach to the world that I didn't really agree with. And I remember having a conflict one day and going into my superintendent's office and saying, before you hire another like that individual, uh, maybe we should chat. And they left uh, two weeks later, I found myself into the management stream and, and jumped from provincial parks uh, to conservation authorities, to a botanical garden, to a zoo. Uh, and now I get to get to do this every day. So Dolph, what is it about this kind of work that gets you so excited? Well, it's it's this incredible interface where we have this enormous audience. We have 1.2 million guests a year uh, to our zoo and, and we get to introduce them to the natural world and we get to share uh, animals, individual stories with them that they've only ever dreamed of. And suddenly you get these moments where that, uh, that screen image or that idea they had in head, their head from a book or, or some other format uh, becomes reality. And, and that's just something truly magical. And and this notion of connection and caring, I think, is at the core of what we do. And that leads us to our mission at the zoo, which resembles my personal mission, 
connecting people, animals, and conservation science to fight extinction. Because at the end of the day, uh, I wish I could say it's getting better for nature out there, uh, but it's not. So we have an important role to play with this huge, diverse audience. Mm. Can you expand on that a little bit, uh, on, on particularly the notion of connection and caring? You know, you know, it's it's one of the things Jane Goodall talks about frequently about this notion of of caring and concern as a catalyst for learning more and meaningful action. And and we've started to really dig into that to understand what it means. And we found uh, when we connect uh, tangible conservation actions, things people can do, uh, purchasing sustainable palm, uh, palm oil, uh, recycling their electronics with gorillas and orangutans after a few visits to the zoo, uh, they're more likely to process and do that. Uh, so that caring piece and the call to action piece is, is phenomenal and we need to do way more on it. Uh, but I think it's, it's what we need to see to affect change again at scale. And that's what we need when we're fighting issues like climate change and biodiversity loss. Huge numbers of people at least starting to take steps and building that literacy. So you said that you'd like to say it's getting better, but it's not take not maybe going in the in the direction you want it to go. So what are the steps? What are what can people do specifically? Like you mentioned palm oil, but are there are there little steps that people can take every day that would help? Well, there's a huge list of steps. And and Matt, I feel like I could I could spend the next hour just listing off conservation programs. But it's actually a little bit simpler than that. When I'm talking to folks, um, the key interface we all have is when we either, you know, put our hand in our pocket and take out our wallet to purchase something or we click online to purchase something, depending on what you're doing. That notion of thinking about what you're buying, uh, what's its lifespan going to be, and that moment in the hand versus that lifetime on the planet, if you're talking about a single-use plastics that's not recyclable. So that notion of really getting to that intersection of, of consumer behavior and uh, and conservation, I think, is a key key area where we play, whether that's sustainable seafood, uh, forestry projects uh, that are uh, grown the right way or or other food products and, and even choices with diet every day with, you know, even one last uh, day a week with meat is a huge impact. Dolph, can you share a little bit about how that uh, connection, the importance of all of these actions, as well as just the, the entire conservation message is able to be translated into the direct experience at the zoo, even for perhaps the most passive visitor who is buying a ticket because they come, they, they want to come uh, see amazing animals and, and they do and they get all that and they walk away feeling all the messages that uh, that you've been describing. Yeah, Josh, that's what's amazing about a day at the zoo at your Toronto Zoo. It's a massive site, right? We're talking about a 500-acre zoo, uh, 10 kilometers of trails. Um, for a typical day guest, they're staying three to four hours. Uh, so, you know, they're going through a variety of things. They're moving, they're stationary, they're eating, they're going to use all the restrooms. All of these are different contact points where we can start saying, okay, where are we going to put messages in? And we know no single channel is going to reach them. About one in five people actually read signs. We know in many cases, people's dwell times at animals is actually very short. Um, but that said, what is the combination of things, whether it's volunteer and staff interactions, which we know has a huge impact on experience. You know, people who talk to a staff member or volunteer actually will rate our washrooms higher, even though it's the exact same scenario. Just this notion of human interaction improves uh, retention of knowledge and experience of their day. And now with the new world, leaning into the digital layers we can add, uh, what does it mean to have augmented reality? 
on your site. And uh, we've been piloting this, particularly around our Arctic and our Tundra program, uh, where we're getting people uh, glimpses into whether it's the underwater species or, uh, you know, looking at the entire life cycle of caribou, uh, finding ways to increase the stickiness of our message and uh, make sure it's more of a relationship as opposed to that transaction, that passive day out at their zoo. So I'm curious how you measure that. How do you measure the react the the relationship that you're building, and maybe it's through donations or you know uh, you know more more turnstile clicks or whatever. But um, how do you measure that relationship that you're trying to build? Yeah, this is you know you put your finger on the pulse of one of the tough pieces. So we were actually working uh, with a company in, in Toronto uh, doing polling of zoo guests and non-zoo guests about. Uh, conservation awareness of various issues and we found the bigger issues uh, when we talked about climate change specifically we could make no connection between uh, their visit to the zoo and seeing polar bears but again when we went hyper specific with calls to action um, you'd actually get that stickiness so we know uh, now in our interpreter programming we are now using that information to rewrite our interpretive plan to make sure we're going hyper focus on on things people can do that are tangible that are accessible uh, and then we can start uh, tracking that um, the other key thing we're looking for is is that public feedback though and then we've seen it certainly on our digital channels um, coming through the past few years our fans and followers we we're often around third in North America behind uh, Cincinnati and San Diego as far as folks in the zoological field as in the good accredited zoos. And um, our community has really voted with their feet. Um, we just this past year uh, surpassed a record membership number. Um, and I, I think it's attributed to the world we've come through as far as COVID, but also some of the changes we've made that they feel were a safe, uh, great place to be. And, and we just passed 44,000 member households when um, our record about seven years earlier was 34,000. So we are really seeing um, these approaches uh, rewarding us uh, at the front door. So you talked about uh, how you're polling your guests to be able to get feedback, and you also talked about uh, gaining public feedback as well. And so these are, Matt can tell you, these are the areas that gets me really fired up as far as in terms of, you know, what guests are saying in response to surveys combined with what guests are saying online and being able to really balance those together to really kind of extract meaningful metrics from it that lead to those decisions. So can you talk a little bit about kind of balancing both the private feedback collection, the polling of guests with public feedback, TripAdvisor and you know, Facebook reviews and Google reviews and all that. Yeah, um, yeah, so, so important. And sometimes we're our own worst enemy as far as we're so close to it and so familiar. Uh, so that commitment uh, in, in this sample to reaching folks who we've missed traditionally, and that's that, uh, that key audience. You know, Toronto is a massive city, 6 million people. Uh, if folks haven't been, why not? Uh, what, are, what are they missing out? What do they think or not think about us? Uh, so looking for those seams and, and quite frankly, looking at how we're engaging folks, whether it was with our strategic plan and um, going beyond traditional kind of table set up at the mall or the library to get feedback to uh, really uh, using social media aggressively, using thought leaders in the community to bring uh, their contacts with them and, and really taking a moment and stopping and saying, who have we missed? And uh, that's been one of the things in the past few years that has really, uh, really changed for us. Uh, when I started four years ago, I assume the bulk of the work we'd be doing were, would be with the other, you know, kind of conservation champion organizations, WWF, uh, Nature Conservancy. And over the past few years, uh, where we've really, really spent our time is with groups like East Scarborough Storefront and Wood Green Settlement Services. These are folks uh, catering to underserved communities, new Canadians and folks who have not 
historically been part of the zoo narrative, yet are a huge percentage of the individuals who live in Scarborough. By working directly with those groups, I really think we're getting amazing feedback to build a better zoo to serve to serve them. That's awesome. And, and Dolph, I'd like to kind of change gears here just for a second and talk a little bit about a, a term that I've heard um, used alongside your name, which is a ruthless or ruthless optimism. And so I'd love to hear your take on that and what, what that means to all the things we've been talking about and how maybe that that helps you um, get through some of these challenges. Yeah, it's been a little bit more work of late than than historically, <laughs> but yeah, I know. I think I think a, a spirit of ruthless optimism is required because uh, it's easy to get disenfranchised. You know, we get bombarded with bad news uh, on every channel we look at, and um, if my career and my journey has taught me anything, uh, it's assume good intent, uh, look for the best outcomes, and and time after time, I get rewarded. Uh, by amazing people who clearly care deeply. And while we might have different approaches to a problem, uh, are really committed to those, those capital P purpose outcomes. And, um, and it's hard. These workplaces, you know, a zoo, for instance, you know, there's generally not more than one in a community. So um, when you're going to be in a place like this, this is a long-term relationship of sorts. So that, that spirit of ruthless optimism and a commitment to the ideas of redemption, because we're all going to fall down sometimes and, and, you know, falling down or failing at something doesn't make us failures and, and, uh, helping each other back up is going to be key. And, and, uh, I've never seen a better example of it as far as what our team's done over the past few years, uh, pulling each other through, uh, looking past those, those minor, uh, transgressions, uh, without intent, they often have impact, uh, but finding ways to, to unpack those, to get to the good places we need to, because, because our community, our community's hurting and we have a huge opportunity to serve them with, with these organizations. Mm. What advice or guidance would you offer to those who, uh, who, who can be more optimistic or who want to be ruthlessly optimistic when sometimes it really seems like the deck is stacked against us or the, the, the current is moving, you know, it, it just, you know, we're, we're, we're going upstream and it seems like, uh, seems like there's a lot of battles ahead, but remaining optimistic while at the same time, pragmatic and really able to, you know, to charge through these challenges. Yeah, it's, it's such a, such a tough one, Josh. You know, I'm, I'm often wondering when, when folks are, are feeling that way, I'm kind of like, who told you it would be easy? Um, you know, this, this is important work and it's work at scale. Like, you know, I, I have the privilege to be part of a massive organization. It's full and part-time. It's 700 staff. It's 400 volunteers. Uh, it's got a city looking at it for leadership uh you know this is this isn't easy and then the issues we face when you add in 3000 plus animals in our care that we have to meet their entire uh every need for their entire life um who said it was supposed to be easy uh so i think uh, approaching it with the spirit of of progress and positive forward progress over perfection um in service to these animals i i think that's a key part to keeping that that ruthless optimism and finding uh, this, even the small wins, because they're there. You know, you, sometimes it's tough to see, but process-wise, they're there. You just got to stick with it. Yeah, and you, you said it uh, a minute ago, it's easy to get, you know, sort of disenfranchised. It's easy to kind of let this non-easy job become very, very difficult. So um, as you look at your team and you look at the people around you, whether it's the 700 employees or the 400, maybe I got that backwards, the 400 volunteers, um, but looking at all those folks and, you know, you're really the the, the, the engine that drives that, right? And I know that you have a, a great team around you, but keeping your head above above the 
above the 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 surface of the water there that can be a challenge too as as optimism as optimistic as you want to be right that can be tough so where do you look for inspiration that kind of keeps you going well you you kind of highlighted it um but there's kind of two groups I, i've got to start with the team here of staff and volunteers uh i jokingly often say with our volunteers i uh, i literally feel like i have 400 grandparents and uh it never fails when I'm down, when I'm struggling, you go, you have a conversation with them. Uh, they're just happy to be here. Uh, they're committed to connecting people to nature. They have their favorites. They want to tell their stories and, and they do such a great job of it. And they're choosing, right? They're giving us the greatest gift you can give their time uh, and their commitment to being, being part of something when they, they could do anything else. So uh, the volunteers are huge for me. Uh, the staff and, and the core team that I get to spend time with uh I feel like everybody has carried the ball for portions of the past two years. Uh, and, and I've never felt I'm in it alone. Uh, but that's, that's, I can't imagine what that's like for folks. Cause, cause you end up in these jobs and it's, it's like you, you become a bit of a Martian. It, it still doesn't fit as far as how rooms get quiet when you walk in and, and how people treat you and, the, and these hushed tones. Cause I'm still the same inner 12 year old. I always was. So uh, those groups and, and the staff who are really candid with you, they keep you going. And then I've got I've got an incredible network of mentors, and then these are the folks who who uh, tell me the things I don't want to hear. Uh, generally, know me well enough to figure out when uh, when I need a bit of a squeeze and when I need a kick in the ass. And uh, without them, uh, this past few years, really, I, I can't imagine where I would have ended up. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure. I curious as far as as CEO, what are some of the things that uh, are part of your regular life, your regular job that you focus on, deal with regularly that might surprise people who uh, aren't totally familiar with what a CEO does? Yeah, I think I think there's this notion we, you know, we're in our office and I don't know what people think we're doing. Um, I know I know I could probably come up with some things I thought my predecessors were up to. Uh, but, um, you know, the amount of time uh, just talking to guests, uh, volunteers, staff, uh, that notion of, of not just doing a pulse check, you know, that that's actually, you know, a nice term to throw out. Uh, but you, you know, you got to find where the pulse is, and then you got to realize there's a huge amount of variety between all the individuals. So uh, a huge amount of time just trying to really uh, understand what's going around you, uh, sort out the, the music from the noise, and, uh, and then figure out how to bring it into a meaningful action, because because it's um, it's amazing. These big organizations have a huge amount of momentum and and uh, as we've talked a lot about here, um, the metrics of, of what good looks like, you know, animals surviving, of course, but really animals thriving is what we're looking for. So what are the changes you can make that are safe? And, and in a world where, where teams are struggling, right, it's been tough coming out of the pandemic. I think everybody's mental health has is, is, is really taken a hit. Um, and this is very real, what people are feeling. So how do you uh, move an organization along when when we're backing into a level of relevance that, quite frankly, should scare us uh, because of what's going on in the natural world. How do we evolve to better serve it uh, while taking care of those frontline people? So it's it's a, it's a tough one. Can you talk a little bit more about separating the music from the noise? Because I think a lot of people get stuck in the noise and they're not really sure what to listen to. So how do you navigate that? Well, it's it's a mixed bag, you know. I think I think when I look back on my time, uh, there's there's a lot I wish I I could do again or do differently. But um, you know, that's that's the the thing about experience. You have it after the fact. So um, you know, I think that's where you want a diversity of voices. 
um, not just what they look like, how they think, where they're coming from, um, reaching across and into the organization. And and just quite frankly, in, in an organization like ours, which historically was very command and control, very hierarchical, um, helping people get comfortable with the fact that you're going to talk to anyone anytime and uh, helping those frontline folks who, who take a conversation as direction. Um, that's, that was a really uh, a tough one for me to wrap my head around when I was just like, I was just curious about this. I, I wasn't expecting you to change it. Um, but um, that notion of the weight uh, you can have uh, is key. So having the right people around you uh, to, to give you that feedback and go, hey, you know, when you do this, this happens uh, is key. And, and um, yeah, we've I've fallen on my face more than once and twice on this one. And, uh, you know, still still growing into it as we look to to fill out our team. Yeah. And, and over the last few years or so, of course, there's been uh, so many external factors that have that have just changed. You know, the entire attractions industry, cool. uh, news and, and aquariums, nonprofit cultural attractions. Can you talk a little bit about just how uh, being a leader just has has changed and evolved with just everything that the last few years have really thrown at us? Yeah, it's it's an interesting one that that question. I you know I'm a first time CEO, right? So I landed in this zoo. Um, I had a year, year and a half to to kind of go through a cycle, and then and then the pandemic arrived. Uh, so I think it was probably easier for me because I was able just to take it for what it was. You know, we we had things happening. Uh, we brought in the the folks who needed to be in the room. We could make decisions based on the best data available. Um, I didn't really have to change much as far as how I was operating because I was still just soaking everything up. I, I, I'm guessing it was far far harder for folks uh, to to um, unpack things they've been doing for decades or rituals they had in place, which I didn't have to, I didn't have to carry that. But uh, one of the things that has come out of it, I think definitely is, is our work has changed as far as serving purpose. And it matters more than ever. Uh, folks, folks want to, they want to be part of something they can believe in. They want to be part of something they truly support. Um, even us as an agency of the city, uh, the expectation that we operate as, as a small a activist organization, that's going to champion causes that they care about. Um, and doing that within the framework of, of um, where we make our living, the, the conservation science and the data sets to be able to defend it. So uh, people are looking for that. And I think we've taken those steps. Uh, and they're also they're really waking up, particularly in Canada. I think we're seeing such amazing progress around equity, diversity, inclusion, as far as just making our team so much stronger. Uh, it, we've also been doing a huge amount of work around um, Indigenous relations and our Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We just brought on um, a first, I think possibly for North America, we have a director of Indigenous Relations to help us serve the traditional territory holders and, and urban Indigenous uh, community members. And, and these are all things that, that we barely uh, spent time thinking about five, 10 years ago. And it's a, just a whole new layer uh, in addition to conservation, in addition to animal welfare and well-being. Um, now this, this lens and really thinking differently about our people and, and, and how do you make changes that serve them again in these big systems that are really slow to turn. Yeah. Well, and I would like to kind of take that concept of leadership a little bit further and go back to something you said earlier, where you said the community is also looking to you for leadership. So it's not just the, you're the CEO of the Toronto Zoo, but you've got a whole city and probably even larger uh, area that's really looking for your leadership. So can you talk us through that process and the decisions you have to make and and what kind of leadership that they're looking for yeah you know we've we've talked a lot internally about uh, this idea of i want to add an s to our name 
right? We're Toronto's zoo. And, and that's something that we want uh, folks to feel a sense of pride and a, a sense of ownership to. And, and you can't do that if they've never been. You can't do that if you have artificial barriers to access. And you can't do that if, if the fence is meant to keep animals and guests safe, have been used as a tool of oppression to keep people out. Uh, so, you know, we've spent a huge amount of time just being in community and, and joining those local boards. And we, we started really in the, in the circle closest to us, whether it's the Scarborough Business Association or the Renewal Organization, um, as anchor institutions with the local hospital, university and college, and a lot of time listening to what did they want and what did they need. And in some cases, uh, they were looking for access. In other cases, they were looking for better pipelines to access career opportunities. And, and we've been trying to fill in those gaps and it started with listening and, and uh, really uh, understanding what, what folks were looking for and, and also us looking in the mirror. How do you have an organization uh, like ours that uh, the bulk of people look like me in a community where 27% of the population look like me if you don't have some systemic barriers? So uh, we've had to really step back. Uh, our team has, has been amazing as far as coming together and saying, what policy changes do we need to make? Uh, where were those other completely... Um, at times accidental walls that we'd put up. So uh, yeah, it's been a journey for us. And thankfully the leadership of, of these other organizations has been patient and, and they have so much they have to deal with as far as uh, social justice challenges, in some cases, food insecurity, uh, just, just their, their financial well-being. And they took the time to educate us and, and make us part of their story. And, and we're just grateful that they're happy to, to come and visit and, and share that with us. And now this can be their zoo as well. Mm. What's the response been to those types of initiatives uh, from your team as well as from the, the local community as well? Yeah, well, for, for you know, I'll speak, I'll speak to what I know. You know, personally, I just, I can have a little cry right now. Uh, it, you know, you host folks and uh, the opportunity to be a refuge for them in a world that is just relentless. And, you know, you get family. We, we hosted 20, uh, 29 new Canadians who'd never been to the zoo before uh, last weekend and uh, gave them escape. Uh, they got to have some breakfast. They had VIP tours and they got to be the center of a story that was nothing but good uh, for six hours. Uh, yeah, incredible moments like that uh, are the kind of thing that you wake up for. Yeah. Well, and I was going to ask you sort of a favorite moment, but that sounds like that might be it. But um, we could we could even go back further. You know, were there moments where, you know, you had that um, interaction with it with a tiger or you saw a particular animal that that really said this is what I want to do and and now I want to create those experiences for others hmm. so so when I actually go way back uh my one of my first roles was as an interpreter at Presqu'ile Provincial Park and uh, I remember leading a fossil walk uh, so we were going down the shoreline and, and, and teaching kids and young families what to look for. And it was Ordovician period fossils. I still remember this stuff, crinoids and cephalopods, uh, trilobites, all this great stuff. And I remember doing the program and, and we'd done some, some plasticine casts and uh, talked about, you know, how fossils form and, and sent them on their way. And it was a great day. Felt good about myself. One of my first programs. I'm like, hey, this interpretation thing, it's, it's neat. This, this could be okay. Uh, and then the next day, uh, this little guy came back and uh, brought me this. And he's like, Dolph, check out this fossil I found. I'm like, oh, what is it? And he's like, it's a fossil of my thumbprint. And I was like, oh, tell me more. He's like, well, it's not my thumbprint, but look, it fits perfectly. Somebody years ago made this fossil a thumbprint and I found it on the beach. And 
it was just this moment where I'm like, oh, wow, you better get this right because people are listening. So, so that idea of impact suddenly came home in a, in a huge way. And I think that's something that I think about frequently is what are the messages we're sending? Uh, what's going to come back tomorrow? And how do we use that? Because whether we realize it or not, people are going to carry those for a lifetime. And, and, I, and I use it internally. People kind of roll their eyes at me. Uh, our strategic plan says create wow. Uh, and that's because I've got great people around me who, who make me sound like an adult. Uh, but I really wanted to, that to say scar people in positive ways. You know, we really in parks, in gardens, in aquariums and zoos, uh, we have the opportunity to make marks on people that last a lifetime and really can change their trajectory as far as uh, how they feel about the natural world. And that's what we're really striving for, because uh, it's not it's not the critics that I'm worried about. It's the it's the apathetic and the indifferent as far as can change. Mm -hmm. I would love to talk about kind of layer in the conversation of technology and how that fits in with really everything that we've been talking about up till now, from the guest experience, from the employee experience, from conservation and, and everything. Yeah, this is this is something that has me super excited. I think it probably drives the team a little crazy. Uh, but we have another constituency in that equation, which is the animals in our care. And um, our fifth pillar of our strategic plan is revolutionize zoo technology. And We've been working with, with a company that historically was using cameras, machine learning, and AI to monitor dosage of chlorine in swimming pools. Well, we figured out with a, a postdocs and a partnership with a local university how to tell orangutans apart and start breaking down their behavior over the course of a day so we can look at how behavior is changing. We can build a data set that supports the great work of our expert animal care staff. And I'm dreaming of a day where Imagine your heat maps that you're producing from your digital map for guests can be correlated with what we're seeing in orangutan behavior. And we can use that to make data-driven decisions to really make sure we're delivering on animal well-being for these individuals. These are the types of things that um, we're just scratching the surface and, and it's the, the combination of sectors coming together that'll drive it. You see great work going on in the stadium industry. You see hotels doing good work, airlines doing good work. I think when we bring that together with academic communities, uh, wearable tech, zoos, uh, and guest experience, we have an opportunity to really rethink um, what animal uh, monitoring looks like in the name of making sure they're doing the best they possibly can be doing. And I would imagine, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but there are some people that are right on board with you and absolutely, you know, everybody wants the animals to be taken care of well, but then there might be other people who are like, well, this has worked for a long time. Let's not upset the apple cart. So am, am I wrong in that? No, and, and it's it's one of those things that we really want to respect experience and tradition. Um, we don't want to get seduced by toxic nostalgia. So how do you bring these things together? And when it comes to technology, big challenges, we know uh, tech projects have a higher propensity of failing than most things. Um, if you're going to innovate, uh, our question, and, and we use this, this term in the zoo, is, is how do you get to a safe to try point? Uh, how can we do something that economically, animal well-being, welfare-wise, and, and staff commitment is safe to try uh, to take those steps? So um, again, I'm, I'm lucky to be surrounded by, by a real incredible mix of folks, and they're as diverse as the animals they serve. And um, those voices, uh, they're important, whether they're in agreement or disagreement, uh, they're, they're here. And, and that's part of our journey as well, is, is those times where uh, we hear you. We might not agree with you, but we do hear you. And, and I'm just so grateful for those folks who continue to, to speak up regardless. Mm -hmm. You just used a phrase I don't think I've ever heard before. And that's toxic nostalgia. 
And I think that's going to marinate for for a little bit after the interview. But uh, but but such a, a fascinating idea is that just about not making change because you think people don't want change or people want to you know they're they're so embedded in in the heritage in the tradition that that they feel perhaps afraid of change and is it about really breaking through to that while at the same time like you said respecting the tradition but you know at the same time continuing to to move forward and advancing and taking advantage of of the technology that that we have today uh to blend all that together yeah. Yeah. And our experts are amazing. You know, the talented folks I get to work with, you're talking about individuals who have dedicated decades of their life to their craft. Uh, they, they're, they're serious heavy hitters at the same time. Um, when you've been in a place like Toronto and then we we're working to get folks out more to see what others are doing and, and, and expand their exposure. And, and there's another factor in here. You talked about leadership five years ago to today. The other factor that creeps in is I really think folks with all the changes in their personal life, uh, you know, we're seeing data sets that people are doing less uh, outside of work hours, less participation in clubs. They have less friends than they did uh, eight years ago, or sorry, four years ago. Uh, this is from a Toronto Social Capital report. Uh, so, so our team, our, our members of this community, a lot of them are probably uh, suffering from the same thing. So I think part of what also creeps in is folks are looking for consistency in life. And at times they look to work to provide that consistency. And, and we want to make sure we provide it as far as they're going to you know, be able to have the resources to care for their family and we're going to honor their health and well-being. Uh, but the other elements of that consistency, we're definitely going to be challenging with use of technology and, and, and realizing that we want to accomplish and do more in pursuit of our mission. So Dolph, you just used a, a, a word that I want to touch on and that's craft. Um, and part of that is because I was just before this this uh, recording was having a, a conversation with someone about, you know, figuring out what their craft is. Um, and we kind of equated to passion, but I think it's a little bit different. So I'm curious what your definition of that is of, you know, ha someone having a craft and then what is your craft? Yeah. Well, when I think of, you know, again, I think there's our, our trades persons, you know, and their crafts are, are as diverse as the trades are. Um, but uh, I'm thinking of our wildlife care staff and, and I often leave, uh, for my brain, I talk about them being able to speak animal. Uh, so literally, uh, I'm picturing one of them right now who I'm pretty sure can speak red panda and they can see uh, cues and signs that that most folks would totally miss. Um, but they have honed the craft to the point where they can see that, uh, you know, our polar bear uh, staff, um, the folks with the, a lot of the great apes and, and the big uh, felids. Uh, they really have a gift where they can they can read animal um, and um, use that uh, and use that judgment so well to help keep us safe as we're managing change and, and advocating for those individuals. So, yeah, that craft is is amazing. And it's something that is a combination of, of deep care uh, for the individuals and the species and, and experience to stick with it. So, yeah, it's it's pretty cool to, to get to see that. Yeah. What would you say your craft is? Um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an interesting hybrid. Um, I, I'm really, I'm really interested in, and it starts with a, a care and a passion for animals. Um, I've always had animals in my life uh, as a naturalist and a kid growing up, I was a free range kid playing in the forest, uh, and spent a lot of time watching and observing. And, and I think, 
uh, starting with that and that belief in, in the connection. And I just love people. I'm a, I'm a, whatever an extrovert is, I'm that thing a little bit further. Um, I, I just absolutely love those moments of, of being with people, connecting, uh, seeing the light go on and, and really those, those opportunities to inspire people in positive ways and make memories in a life that last a lifetime. I never thought I'd have the opportunity to be on a, a a stage this big or a canvas this broad. Uh, so using the, the hybrid skills of somebody who, who uh, has had experience in education and the technical side and the sciences, I think that's, that's probably where I come in. Uh, you know, they're, uh, they're the experts. Uh, I'm grateful I get to kind of jump in and out of their different pools. Yeah. So if you weren't doing what you're doing now, if you weren't in this industry, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh, I'd probably be, I'd probably still be Ranger Dolph. Uh, you know, growing up in the provincial park system was phenomenal. Um, the mix of guest experience, active on the ground conservation programs, you know, habitat restoration. Uh, it was, it was incredibly fulfilling. And, and that notion of ecosystem scale conservation, you know, it's critical. We need it. We need these places for animals to live. And, and, you know, it's kind of like my journey. I started with massive, you know, tens of kilometers of spaces for animals to live, to uh, focus on plants, to a focus on fish, to a focus on, on mammals. And uh, I feel like I'm getting a little bit smaller, uh, but uh, I often talk about conservation being a team sport and we need more players and, and players include good accredited zoos doing conservation work, as well as those folks uh, protecting the land and hopefully uh, we're going to have those places for them to live long term. So we've been talking a lot about leadership and, um, you know, kind of your your outlook on it. And I'm curious, I'm sure that there's people that you work with that are young leaders that are kind of coming up into the into their career. Um, what sort of guidance or advice do you have for those folks to grow their career, to get the experience you think they need, um, to make the mistakes, you know, that it's okay to make. So what are some of your, your kind of go-to pieces of advice for them? I think, I think it's, it's a strong reminder that nobody gets there alone. Um, you know, I, I have a community of mentors, uh, and, uh, they're from all walks of life. Uh, you know, uh, one of them's a, a, uh, retired principal. One of them's a retired vice president for big oil. Um, one of them's a, a carpenter. So, so this diversity of perspectives, uh, that helped help kind of make sure I wasn't in the echo chamber of mentor wise, uh, was key. And, and then, then embracing discomfort, you've got to find folks, uh, who are going to give you feedback that makes you better, not just makes you feel better. Uh, and they're really different things. Yeah. And uh, I've always taken a pretty deliberate approach to it. I almost I almost see it like uh, professional dating where where like you ask somebody out, hi, will you be my mentor? It means I'm going to probably want to have coffee with you or a call with you every month or two. Uh, and then you've got to be actively listening and interested in what they have to say, even if you're not sure where it's going to fit. Uh, so I think that that's the key piece that I'm that I'm um, sharing with folks frequently and i'm actually seeing and, and there's a big uh, breakdown apparently by gender uh, particularly a lot of women have not uh, assembled uh, mentor committees or communities and uh, no one gets there alone so uh, i think it's an important role for folks to play and for any leaders out there um, you know how many mentees do you have because we have a responsibility to share what we know that's great advice thanks so much for sharing that so we're uh, starting to run a little low on time but i, I do have a, another question for you and at the beginning of the interview you talked about how you would visit the zoo as a child you talked about the memories that you had of of just walking through and seeing that and now walking through the zoo as a ceo how often do you maybe call back to those moments or do they come back to you and and do they drive whether it's 
decisions or your actions or uh, in any way, you know, carry a meaning in, in what you're doing today? Well, there's two, there's kind of two rules I live by. One is uh, I see an animal every day because I want to be clear on who I'm serving. You know, yes, our team, but uh, these animals, they don't get a chance to come to my office and visit me. So I see an animal every day and once a week. I park out front and I walk through the front door to remind myself what guests uh, go through to stay anchored. And, and as part of that, uh, I've worked really hard to protect that inner 12 year old uh, who's wandering through the site and enjoying the site and as much as possible bringing others. Uh, you know, when I when I do business tours, if you folks were coming, I'm like, hey, do you have any kids? Bring them along as well uh, and, and get to watch through their eyes. And, and I had an experience on the weekend where uh, we took uh, took one of one of my friends uh, who's who's in the local uh, sports industry here. And, and we went and looked at our new habitat and, and went to a new installation. And, and the kids were actually uncomfortable. And we we're like, wait a second. We could make this way more fun and better serve these kids if we actually added a slide to this design. So um, this notion of, of, of safe living trials is huge and, and, and sharing as much as possible and getting that feedback because we really will get better products from it. So, okay, I've got one more question, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, but you just, you mentioned safe uh, trials there. You've mentioned safety uh, in the past and, you know, being able to get to a place where it's it's um, it, it feels safe to kind of make those decisions and, and make those tough calls. How do you foster that kind of relationship and environment with your team where they do feel safe enough to either call you out or make a mistake? Uh Matt, we're still working on it. We're not there yet. Um, there's pockets where it's it's grabbed. Uh, yeah, when I look at our our diverse team, there's certain pockets who who I think you know frontline junior folks would be, look at me and go seriously golf. And I've got other groups uh, that still uh, wouldn't dare of it. So um, it's a journey, and it and it goes to those relationships and, and the body of work and trust. And and uh, it's hard it's hard fought uh, to earn. And it's easily lost. And again, when I talk about regrets, I can certainly think of a few decisions I've made uh, that that haven't served uh, building those relationships and trust. So they will continue to bring it forward. In other cases, um, folks have, have been there. And that's, that goes back to the notion of the long-term relationship. And then we're in this together. Um, what I do count on is, is folks' shared commitment to the well-being of the animals and the well-being of the organization long-term. Uh, that bleeds us through. And, and if nothing else, um, Sometimes I wander in the dark, but this team so far has been incredible and haven't let me walk off the cliff or do anything that walks our, our animals, or our organization off the cliff. So um, we're still working on it. I, I wish I wish I had a better answer than that. Oh. Well, Dolph, as we start to uh, wind down here and uh, get close to the finish line of this interview, if people wanted to learn more about the Toronto Zoo, if they wanted to get a hold of you directly, where would you send them? I would send them to torontozoo.com or uh, LinkedIn is the easiest place to find me. Perfect. Perfect. Well, Dolph, this has been a wonderful uh, opportunity to kind of pick your brain a little bit. I know we got to interact a little bit at the uh, IAPA conference. So thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. And for everybody who's out there watching and listening, just remember, we are all Attraction Pros. Thanks for listening to the Attraction Pros podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can tune in when new episodes release. And even better, please leave us a review on iTunes. For more information, visit attractionpros.com.